This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on Election Rewind. A new breeze is blowing, and the old bipartisanship must be made new again. Tonight, the battle has been joined. We got the President of the United States interested in a balanced budget. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of our union is strong. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. It is located in Afghanistan and operated by groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden. Let us lead this nation together. I will swear to uphold the honor and the integrity of the office to which I have been elected. So help me God. Episode 2. The Road to the Nomination. George H.W. Bush and Martin Van Buren were the only two uh, sitting vice presidents to ascend to the presidency by vote. Fox News politics editor Chris Steyerwalt. Al Gore was even less well-equipped for it than those guys because he didn't know who he was. When I got out that time, I said, I did make that pledge. If I ever run for president again, I'm going to run as an older candidate. And I've, I've kept that pledge. Carter Eskew was an old friend of Gore's. They had actually worked at the Nashville, Tennessean together. Campaign strategist for Al Gore, Bob Shrum. And had been in the media business, but had split with his partner. And so there'd been a several year period when he and Gore were not in much contact. I was seeing Gore during that time. He clearly wanted to bring Carter back in. And that's that's what happened in around June of 1999. Uh, Carter and I were at that point partners. And so we assumed that role in the campaign. At that time, you know, we were in a period of peace, prosperity. The economy was humming along. Um, confidence in the economy was really high. National editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter. You didn't see sort of a schism within the Democratic Party either. You know, even though there were there were eight years of Clintonism, I, you know, I think at that moment in time, um, there was a feeling that uh, Democrats were in a great position, despite the fact that, you know, it's really hard for a party that's had the White House for eight years to go on and win a third term. But given just the fundamentals of the economy and Clinton's job approval rating, it seemed like this was a realistic possibility that Al Gore could not just that he would win the nomination, but that he'd win the whole thing. He was the presumptive nominee since he had um, been vice president, obviously. Host of Special Report on the Fox News Channel, Brett Baer. And it kind of cleared the deck a little bit uh, as far as the challenges to, to Gore. Here we are in a country where we are disenchanted 
angry with HMOs because they're taking away the doctor's decisions in the, in the, in the clinical situation and we can't even get a patient's bill of rights. Here we are at a time where there's the Columbine episode and 13 kids are killed and tragedy strikes again practically every other week. It's all across our television screens. And we can't even get common sense gun control. Well, Bill Bradley was the kind of glistening bauble, the kind of jewel-encrusted candidacy that every cycle uh, draws the attention of the political elite and the media, but fulfill the function of the candidacy that the intellectual elite uh, and the moneyed elite like, but no one else cares about. In those days, we talked about like the wine track and the beer track of the Democratic Party. But Bill Bradley, to me, fit into the idea of somebody who was coming in as while well, he'd been part of the Washington establishment, um, the candidate for the thinking Democrat, for the more elite Democrat. Less than a mile from where I'm standing, not far from the banks of the Mississippi River, there once stood the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company. It was there for a hundred years. In its heyday, it employed 4,000 people and turned out thousands of tons of glass. It seemed that just about Everybody in town worked for what we called PPG. We didn't grow corn or wheat here in Crystal City. We made glass. Today, I want to be as clear as that glass about who I am and why I'm running for president of the United States. I've come back to my hometown because for me, this is where the world of possibility and hope all began. A world that I want to open for all Americans. Early on, uh, Bradley was gaining a lot of steam, and he um, really had some some focus uh, pre-New Hampshire. Um, and there was a threat uh, to Gore. Bradley announced that he was going to run in favor of health care and uh, covering all children on the on the road to universal coverage, which was actually Gore's position. Uh, he was going to run on gun control, which did force Gore, I think, to probably go further on that issue at that point than he wanted. Uh, it was clear, for example, when we went to West Virginia that we were in that that was a pretty hopeless uh, state for us uh, because of that position. Uh, but uh, I didn't think there was a great deal of difference between their positions. There's always this undue attention, candidates who's views fall into this quadrant that is socially liberal, which Bradley definitely was, but fiscally conservative, which is Bradley definitely was. The only problem is that's not where the votes are. There are there are about as many votes up there as there are rich college educated folks, which is to say it is a decided minority of the population. But where there are lots of votes is where Al Gore liked to hang out. And by the way, where George W. Bush liked to hang out, which is to say socially moderate to conservative and fiscally liberal. You know, I th look, I think all what matters in campaigns in the end is candidates. I think strategists, consultants, they can make a contribution, sometimes a really important contribution. Uh, but at the end of the day, people judge the candidate. I joined the campaign in November of 1973. 
when I went to work for his dad. Chief strategist for George W. Bush, Carl Rove. So I had been the, had been his consultant in the 94 election campaign and the 98 re-election campaign. And, you know, I was sort of the mad scientist running around thinking about this. And, and after the 96 Republican convention, there were a lot of people who started talking to him about it. I think he was initially taken a little bit by surprise, but by the end of the process, uh, after Dole lost, uh, you could tell he was, um, those kind of conversations were clearly having an impact. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear, solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the duties, that I will faithfully execute the duties of the office of governor, of office of governor, of the state of Texas, of the state of Texas, and will to the best of my ability. And will. There was an, an intentionality about the way Bush governed in Texas with an eye on that presidential run. Now, you could probably have said the same thing about his brother in Florida, but Bush's time in Texas had been this very intentional governance that was, people in Texas were obviously satisfied enough to return him to office. It's a modern day political dynasty. Texas Governor George W. Bush has been reelected in a landslide win. His younger brother, Jeb Bush, will be the new governor of Florida. The older Bush was watching his younger brother's race closely on election night. It's uh, the second best thing of the evening. Uh, I, I tell you, I love my brother a lot. He's going to be a great governor. I also love my parents a lot. I think tonight's victory is a great testimony to George Bush. He finally begrudgingly agreed to allow a, a exploratory committee to be formed, and I think we did it on the 8th of March. And so, you know, we had to raise it a 1000 bucks at a time. And you may remember there's a, some interesting stories about what happens when we, on uh, in June, announce what our number's going to be in a couple of days. They're literally gasped by the press because we raised the unheard of amount of something like, you know, 30-some-odd million dollars. And, they, you know, they were gasped in the room when we said that. But but he did not make up his mind until at the end of the legislative session, he began to discuss it with his wife and uh, others, and I'm sure his parents, and made a decision to, to go. And shortly after that, we began. But... He's a very methodical guy, so when he says, I'm not going to make a decision until these things happen, he doesn't make a decision until those things happen. I'm running because I want our party to match a conservative mind with a compassionate heart. I want you to know that prosperity is not a given. Some in this current administration think they've invented prosperity, but they didn't invent prosperity any more than they invented the internet. I'll tell you what I remember most about the 2000 election was a phrase that someone we were uh, talking to a lot, a political strategist at the time, called the Seinfeld election. You know, it just felt like an election that wasn't really much about anything. It was really a time where, as I said, we were in the midst of like a really, this was calm waters, good economy, no, no big international conflicts. Obviously we had just had an impeachment and the president's own, President Clinton's own um, personal problems were on display. And yet, it's not as if the country was sort of consumed with that overall. And so this was looking like it was kind of a boring time politically. Um, Now, for many Americans, boring is good. 
right? Because it means nothing's going wrong. But for political reporters and people who cover campaigns, it's not fun to have a boring race. And John McCain wasn't boring. But we are not going to go negative and we won't launch an attack, but we will respond. John McCain was coming in as the guy who was even though he's part of the Senate, of course, he was the outsider. He was the maverick. He was the guy who brought reporters onto the Straight Talk Express bus and really was open and, um, you know, in, in the in the days before we had the Internet that was widely used or YouTube videos or things like that, there was a sense that he was providing access to reporters and then ultimately to voters of a campaign that no other candidate had done before. There was a uniqueness to that. And, um, you know, and to a guy who was just going to say what he was going to say. Yeah, yeah, they had a million dollar fundraiser in Washington, D.C. not long ago. There's 20,000 contributors of his with a with a Washington, D.C. zip code. But look, what I'd like to do is get back on to how we're going to help the veterans restore the military, improve education. That's what I hope we'll get back on to after this little flurry is over. McCain used to joke he would refer to the press as my base. Um, McCain was a staple of the Sunday talk show circuit. He was beloved by reporters because John McCain is a charming, endearing, funny, irascible quote machine. Right. We take the entire campaign and the bus transported. How do we transport? I guess we'd have to get an Air Force uh, C five, you know, yeah, yeah. C five. Transport the bus down there, and then we'll campaign. Through the- McCain always had something to say. He had was quick witted. He was funny. Uh, one of my favorite moments from the two thousand campaign was that a reporter wanted to be snarky asked McCain who his favorite poet was, thinking that he was going to prove that this, you know, boob didn't didn't know about this stuff. And uh, he quote, he said, Robert Service, and then quoted Robert Service at length in full. You know, it really was sort of the establishment and, and the anti-establishment. And um, what, what we think of today as establishment and anti-establishment is, is kind of different, but it is the sort of traditional Republican... Um, power brokers, um, the people who had been the stalwart defenders of the Republican Party for years and voted for Reagan, they voted for George H.W. Bush. Um, Those were the folks behind the Bush campaign. And, you know, what McCain, he provided an opportunity for Republicans who were looking for, you know, something different. Um, than the traditional kind of candidates that Republicans had had put forward. After more than eight hours of deliberations, three Republicans emerged from the Senate gallery and announced they will not vote to convict the president. Vermont Senator Jim Jeffords was the first to announce he'll vote not guilty on either charge. Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania followed, saying since the prosecutors could not call live witnesses, they didn't make their case. And he will vote to acquit. That is not to say uh, that the president is not guilty, uh, but to specifically say that the charges, in my judgment, have not been proved. Imagine campaigning on your vision for where the country's going and, and having to answer questions about um, your boss uh, and eight years of 
of, of what he dealt with. You know, Gore turned it and talked about the economy and talked about the things that um, the Democrats felt good about uh, in the Clinton years. But it was a challenge for him uh, and, you know, not the smoothest of, of campaigners. We've tried this kind of budget before, and it nearly wrecked the United States. It drove our economy into the ditch. Uh, it it created the deepest recession since the, the Great Depression. I had a very friendly relationship with President Clinton. I have worked with him on the State of the Union messages over the years and some other important uh, speeches and uh, decisions. But uh, that relationship was a casualty of my participation in the Gore campaign because our polling consistently showed that especially with swing and undecided voters, uh, while people appreciated the prosperity of the Clinton years, his personal favorables were not in good shape. Uh, They were well below where Gore's personal favorables were. And in a state like Iowa, it was quite clear from both the focus groups and the polling that if you sent him in and he did a lot of campaigning, you weren't going to gain ground, you were probably going to lose ground. Listen, I'm focused on Iowa, and I'm, 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 uh, uh, I've got a good chance here if the voters go to the polls. <laughs> you know, the Iowa caucuses present traditionally the opportunity for a breakout candidate where the establishment candidate can get upset because it's uh, a state that likes to meet its candidates, where retail can be very, very important. So you're anticipating a pull this off tonight? why I'm here. Like say hello, go Where just spending millions of dollars or being the favorite from the political establishment isn't always enough. Eastern Iowa, places like Maytag, uh, places like the Quad Cities are going to provide a big unionized manufacturing base. Uh, it will have a lot of liberal liberals, but that's, gonna, that's going to be really powerful inside the Democratic Party. And on the Republican side, you're seeing the rise of the evangelicals, uh, certainly as the force to be reckoned with uh, with the GOP. Well, the first contest was actually the Iowa straw polls in Ames that fall, which thankfully is no longer on the schedule. But I mean, it was like you had to show up and you had to participate. And they were giant sucks of money. And very rarely did the winner of the of the uh, straw poll actually become the nominee of the party or, or even win Iowa. But we had, you know, you had to do all this stupid stuff. The moment for George Bush, where you really saw that George Bush got it, he's asked in an Iowa, it's a, it's a weird town hall kind of setting where the bunch of Republicans are sitting in these weird, like, desk chairs in a semicircle. And the uh, moderator, who is a local uh, TV guy, uh, says, you know, and he's, and he's talking about, your, who's your favorite philosopher? He's trying to do this, this same thing. I'm smart, you're dumb. And Bush says, Jesus Christ, because he changed my heart. And it was like, boom, you have a mainstream nominee, heavily favored nominee, governor of the largest Republican state, son of a former president, who openly embraces evangelical kind of language and who himself is an evangelical Christian. You must welcome faith-based programs and charity programs into after-school programs, into prison ministries, just like the one you have here in Newton, Iowa, into character-based education programs. You see, changing hearts it will transform America for the positive. 
and make sure our country's great hope will send that signal that everybody who's willing to work can realize the American dream. The most important event leading up to the Iowa caucuses was what used to be called the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. And that's usually when Iowa voters get very serious and they begin to say, who are we going to really pick? And, the, and you frame the question for them. And Gore gave a speech where his constant refrain was stay and fight. And it was about uh, after Newt Gingrich took over the House and uh, you had some really difficult times from 94 to 98. Uh, uh, Bill Bradley had decided he wouldn't run for re-election to the Senate, which he would easily have won in 1996. Uh, and Gore basically drew a line between them that said some people decided to stand and fight and some people decided to stay and fight and other people walked away i want to fight for you i need you to fight for me i've just begun to fight for the causes that bring us together a society that says the system the society says the future belongs to everybody who's lucky enough to call themselves an American and is willing to work for it. And so that's why I'm running. And that's why I'm here to ask for your vote. And that's why I've asked the ladies of my life to join me in this great quest. For those of you who are here for me, I can't thank you enough. Now go to your caucuses. It isn't Dr. Kevorkian at trial here. It was everyone's rights on trial here. thought they were fireworks, so we came back after we had run. We looked up. There was two guys with guns and a kid in a white shirt standing on the side of the school. They've been working since 88, getting ready for Y2K, and promise the banks are prepared. Millennium terrorism plot that has officials at all of the nation's 301 border crossings on high alert. very much. Laura and I thank you very much and thank you Iowa. It was important because look we were the front runner and uh, like it or not there's this sort of you know group of three or four or five hundred politicos and you know journalists and opinion makers and they sort of decide who is um, the front runner and so you better you better come in first and we and we had to and we did to the people of iowa thank you for the biggest victory in the history of the contested caucuses here in iowa wow thank you thank you my message to you this evening is very simple we've just begun to fight as the presumed front runner, if Gore had lost the Iowa caucus, he would have been, I think, in great trouble. Now, he won it by a very large margin, uh, so it, that eventuality never came about. But uh, the vice president spent a lot of time in Iowa. Uh, we spent what was then uh, a, a fair amount of money on... Uh, advertising and organizing, you know, we, we, we won Iowa and moved on to New Hampshire. I am humbled and I am honored by your outpouring of support. Tonight marks the first election night of the new millennium, the beginning of the process by which 
America will choose the president to lead us into the 21st century. And tonight also, and tonight also marks the beginning of the end of the Clinton era. You have a mainstream nominee, heavily favored nominee, governor of the largest Republican state, son of a former president, who openly embraces evangelical kind of language and who himself is an evangelical Christian. So this is the big change. And under those circumstances, John McCain is not going to feed the bulldog in Iowa. McCain basically made a very smart, calculated decision, which was uh, the time that I spend in Iowa is wasted because I'm not going to I'm not going to make 99 counties and the state's a bad fit for me anyway. It's a Midwestern, socially conservative state uh, that likes conformity. They like going for the first for the, you know, they, they like going for the thing that's expected. Uh, and they also like going for, you know, something that's sort of Midwestern in nature. Uh, and he said, I'm not I'm, I'm not a good fit. But New Hampshire, they like upsetting the apple cart. And uh, if I go there and devote my time in New Hampshire and I go to every firehouse and every community center and every city hall and every backyard and just let them ask me questions until the cows go home, um, I'll, I'll, I'll dig in and, and do well there. We're at our fifth town hall meeting of the day and there were so many questions and comments and occasional insults at our last stop that I'm a little late being here. Please accept my deep apologies and thank you for your patience. And that's why I'll speak a little bit rapidly because I want to have as much time as possible for us to exchange ideas and thoughts. Look, this has been a great experience for me. This has been a wonderful exercise in democracy. This is what democracy is all about. Everybody in this room has something better to do than being here tonight, yet you have taken your responsibilities as citizens, as voters, and and the first in the nation status uh, of the state of New Hampshire in being here. I am very grateful. New Hampshire also likes to um, be a check on Iowa. Um, they long have long seen themselves as the real deciders in the election, that Iowa picks corn and New Hampshire picks presidents. Um, and there's also a very strong retail component to New Hampshire politics, the town hall component, right? The, the style of interaction with voters that um, John McCain just is very, very good at. I've been all over the state. As Warren mentioned, we've had 106 uh, town hall meetings. Uh, there's no depth that I haven't sunk to in my search for votes. Um, <laughs> I, even, I even spoke at a West Point graduate's dinner in Nashua. Now, as, a West, as a Naval Academy graduate, that, that obviously is, is uh, you know, you can't imagine. John McCain uh, had basically passed on Iowa. Uh, and was shoving all in on New Hampshire. But then he finds that Steve Forbes, with his surprising finish in Iowa, uh, has some pep going into New Hampshire. Uh, that's not good for Bush because it's going to split up the more traditionally conservative vote. This tax cut proposed by George Bush is what it is. It is small. It is inadequate. It leaves the IRS in place. It leaves 67,000 lobbyists still lobbying this corruptingly complex code. Forbes was a friend of mine. He had been the chairman of the Board for International Broadcasting that oversaw Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, and we become pretty good friends. And so I, I liked him a lot. I thought he was an improbable presidential candidate because he's, he is, he's brilliant. The guy is unbelievably smart, but he, he has difficulty in, you know, po politics is also about the personal and the relatability, and he's a shy guy. 
he, 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 I was worried more about McCain right from the beginning, but not as worried as I, I should have been. You have tons of Democrats and independents coming over to support McCain. So Bush, you know, his campaign badly mishandles New Hampshire. They do not treat it right. They do not suck up the way that they're supposed to suck up and really left it open for McCain. The most recent Fox News WMUR tracking poll shows Senator McCain, John McCain, and Texas Governor George W. Bush neck and neck in the New Hampshire primary. With less than 48 hours to go before the polls open, Governor Bush has taken a break from the campaign trail to join us. Good morning, Governor. Tony, good morning. So you're closing fast. I think so. I think so. I feel good about it. There's a lot of energy. Tony Quayle, who was then the chairman of the campaign, although Bill, Bill Daly would, would soon take over, uh, uh, called Carter and me and said he, you know, he'd gotten something really great. The president had agreed to schedule the State of the Union message the Thursday before the New Hampshire primary. And both Carter and I were horrified by the thought because what does the vice president do during the State of the Union message? Opportunities for all our children. He's like a Cupid doll. He sits behind the, the president, along with the Speaker of the House, and jumps up and applauds, and then sits down, jumps up and applauds, and then sits down. Affordable coverage for prescription drugs. And that's when Carter said, you know, this could re-infantilize Gore. We follow Vice President Gore's suggestion to make low-income parents eligible for the insurance that covers their children. We suddenly saw in our polling a, a, a real drop. Uh, and I called Ted Kennedy in Hyannisport, who had endorsed Gore, had certified his health care plan and said, uh, we're in trouble and we need you up here this weekend. He said, in trouble, you were way ahead. I said, we're not now. And sort of went through what had happened. So he came up and barnstormed the state with, uh, with Gore. We found out here in New Hampshire, you were losing 10 thousand jobs a year during that period of time you're gaining 16,000 jobs a year done to this time Al Gore has made a difference a whole brace of other Kennedys came up and barnstormed the state I want to thank all of you for being here and I want to thank my friend Ted Kennedy for his support for his friendship on election night we were in the back of, I think, the Holiday Inn uh, in conference rooms, uh, tossing a football around. And it looked like we might lose. Uh, we uh, actually did some work on a concession speech in case we lost. And then Michael Hooley, who is a brilliant vote counter and organizer, uh, finally made some phone calls and it became clear that we were going to win, not by a lot, but we were going to win. Uh, and at that moment, I thought Gore would, would certainly be the nominee. Thank you, New Hampshire. Let's win this victory. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, and God bless, and welcome to our 115th town hall meeting here in New Hampshire. <laughs> and I think, I think we finally have a poll without a margin of error. <laughs> the Bush campaign. I think they got worried that very night. Amy Walter. You know, to see what was supposed to be sort of a glide path to the nomination, and you have a candidate who came in a you know, very distant, uh, far back place in the Iowa caucuses to a victory in New Hampshire meant that this thing was for real and that South Carolina was going to be make or break. You know, I had a bad feeling about it, but I thought it'd be close, but it wasn't close. It was 18 or 19 points, as I recall. Carl Rove. The amazing thing, though, was was within the 24 hours after that were the moments where you suddenly realized you were backing the right guy and you were going to win. Um, Bush gathered every, when, when the exit polls showed we were going to lose and lose badly that morning. Or while everybody's voting, Bush called us together and said, we came in this together and we're going to win together. And I'm not going to be making, you know, this is on me. And there'll be no recriminations. I don't want any finger pointing. This is on me and uh, as the candidate. And we're want to, when we're, you know, when we're done with this, I want everybody to go home for a day or two and figure out what we're gonna do differently in South Carolina, which is 19 days away. The idea that he was saying, we're, we're a team and this is on me and I, I'm, I'm counting on you to come up with how we can do better uh, was uh, enormously liberating and um, inspiring. That was when George Bush got, really got his game together. Chris Steyerwalt. Right, I think it was the loss in New Hampshire where Bush stays behind to apologize to his supporters there and say, and to his campaign. It set a blueprint for Bush's leadership style, which was he took it to himself, right? He was not gonna shift the blame. And I think it served him very well in terms of the loyalty, the support uh, of his, not just his inner circle, but among voters who saw him as a guy who was really honest and was willing to take the, take the blame himself. Um, but it certainly increased the value of South Carolina. So everybody scattered for a couple of days. And then by that weekend, we decided that, you know, we got to be as freewheeling as John McCain was. McCain had attacked us with very tough, misleading ads on Social Security in New Hampshire that we had let go by. We can't, we couldn't let those kind of attacks go by. We had to show Bush as he was. We needed to also point out that uh, he'd been a governor who'd actually gotten things done, and McCain's uh, legislative record, as admirable a person as he was, it was spotty. And so we had to, you know, we were the reformer with results, and we started doing town halls and open, you know, uh, you know, open uh, open meetings with Q and A, town hall meetings in the round. I mean, we we and and we barnstormed. I called my people in and I said, pull down our response ad to, to the Bush ad. We're doing nothing but running positive campaigns. Whether we win or lose, we will not run any negative ads in this campaign, my friends. Well, I mean, it was, it was ugly. I mean, there was all kinds of things that were popping up and flyers. Brett Baer. And it wasn't the Bush campaign per se, but people who supported Bush uh, or outside groups were flooding, flooding money in there. Um, and it became a very negative race. But I also think we got a ticking time bomb out there called Social Security. That has got to be fixed. And when you run ads, say you're going to take care of Social Security, my friend, that's all hat and no cattle. 
I, uh... <laughs> that's, uh, that's cute, but, uh... <coughs> you know, they're always cutest oh. when they're true. <laughs> it's not true. You know, was it was a challenge for the Bush campaign because, you know, here is a war hero uh, who was campaigning on changing the dynamic and getting a lot of favorable coverage. McCain in the aftermath of New Hampshire uh, had a lot of disdain, personal disdain for Bush, and he let it, and the, and the people around him had a lot of disdain for Bush. And unfortunately, they made it, they let it show. He attacked us on Social Security. We responded, saying, setting the record straight. And he came back with a response ad that said, he lies like Clinton. And that was over the top. Nobody in South Carolina and the Republican Party, whether they supported Bush or not, thought he was like Bill Clinton. They thought his name was Bush. He was just the opposite of Bill Clinton. His ads trying to link me to Bill Clinton didn't work. People of this state don't appreciate it, and neither do I. He's been campaigning uh, this way for 18 days, and he's failed. We're at a town hall meeting. A woman stood up and said, Senator McCain, I have a 14-year-old son. Last year, he was 13. We had a lot of trouble explaining to him some of the news out of Washington concerning the impeachment. Um, he came to me a short time ago and said, I have a new hero, and that's John McCain. I want to grow up and be like John McCain. He's my hero. She said, last night, he came into my room. He was uh, near tears, and he had, because he had answered the phone, and someone had began to talk to him about me. And he said he was only 14 years old. The caller continued to say that McCain was a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And my friends, this is what's going on around here. And it's wrong. And it's wrong. It got worse because they, uh, McCain was viciously attacked by a uh, professor at Bob Jones University. I think it was initially anonymous email that was circulated to several hundred people and got in the hands of Jonathan Carl, who was then of CNN. And it suggested McCain has, has a adopted child of, uh, of Bangladeshi descent. And the, the suggestion in the ugly email was that she was the daughter of an, of an illicit union with an African-American. And uh, this made the rounds in a limited fashion, but nonetheless got, got caught by the press. And McCain blamed Bush for it, despite the fact that he had no evidence whatsoever. I know that some may view this as not an intelligent approach to winning the primary. The most important thing to me at the end of this campaign is that my kids, my children will be proud of me. But the amazing thing to me was this was the moment where McCain could have won South Carolina. He could have come out and said, the slander is being put out there, and the author of the slander has misread the people of South Carolina. You are a compassionate people who would not stand for this kind of bigotry. And furthermore, let me tell you how I came to have a dark-skinned daughter. My wife went to Mother Teresa's orphanage in, in Bangladesh, and while she was there, thanking Mother Teresa's nuns for the incredibly compassionate work they do in saving these children, they told her of one child, a young, a baby girl, who suffered from uh, heart difficulties that were impossible to be dealt with in Bangladesh. If left untreated, she would die. And my loving wife, compassionate, big-hearted wife, took that child and brought her home, swaddled in a Dr. Pepper t-shirt, which was the only swaddling clothes she could get when she got to the Singapore airport. And when that child came off the plane in Los Angeles in the arms of my wife, I, I was in love. And she's my daughter. 
and I'm proud of my wife for the incredible act of compassion that gave us this wonderful blessing. It would have been over. It would have been over. The strategy was this has to, this, this has to be put away <laughs> in South Carolina because if John McCain is able to get a foothold here and win here, it's going to be a, a, a really tough slog for this uh, this primary. And so there was like an let, let's go all in here and and end this if we can in South Carolina. I stand by what I said. I haven't had one person at these rallies walk up and say say anything about the so-called tenor of the campaign. What they appreciate is what I'm talking about about the future. People are coming up to me and say, I appreciate the fact that you're going to bring honor and dignity to the office. I love your education platform. I'm glad you're going to rebuild the military. That's what I hear. Just before the debate, I had gotten one of our guys in, in uh, York County, which is this big suburban county south of, of Charlotte in, in South Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, but this is the suburbs in South Carolina, had brought us a flyer that had been stuck under a window in a, in a uh, shopping center in York County. All the, all the cars had been leafleted with this, attacking us. And, so, and Bush had put it absentmindedly in his coat pocket. And so when McCain says, says, you know, my campaign ain't doing that, Bush pulls it out and holds it up. And they're literally sitting at a little table. He and uh, Alan Keyes and McCain, a little table, you know, would not be social distancing today. Let's just put it that way. And he holds it up and McCain says, that's not my campaign. And Bush says, says it has your disclaimer here at the bottom, paid for by John McCain for president. Bam, done. Well, there was a theory of the case that said that if John McCain could have just won in South Carolina, then he would be off to the races. But the dirty, dirty Bush campaign, the mean old Bushies, uh, smeared him and that th there were flyers that were that were put out there uh, that uh, people said were, were the, the work of Bush uh, henchmen and that it was because of this smear that John McCain lost in South Carolina and it was all over from there. I congratulate Governor Bush on his victory here and wish him a happy celebration and a good night's rest. He's gonna need it, my friends. <laughs> But John McCain lost South Carolina for the same reason that he lost every other Southern state, which was that George Bush was a socially conservative Southern governor, evangelical Christian, running against a guy who's a senator from Arizona, who is mavericky, uh, and who is not into party loyalty, and who is those things. So it just shouldn't have surprised anybody. He's going to need it, my friends, for we have just begun to fight, and I can't wait for the next round. A strange week for Bill Gates. On Monday, his company was found guilty of violating antitrust law. More and more of these multi-million dollar endorsement deals are drying up, even for the superstar athlete. But all hope is not lost. The new frontier, yes, the internet, is finding a fresh need for the player. And they, in turn, are logging on. We are as committed as ever to reuniting the two in a manner that is most sensitive to Elion's well-being. And talk about a hot stock. Despite today's three-and-a-half-point drop, shares of Finnish phone company Nokia more than tripling in just the last year. Investors betting that wireless really is the wave of the future. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Laura and I are honored and humbled 
by the huge victory he had here in South Carolina. I, I think that he had many advantages in, uh, over me, and I think they ended up with a, with a successful strategy. We did. I haven't turned my back or walked away from a single challenge over these last seven years or 23 years when your interests are at stake. I want to fight for you and I want to be your next president. I don't remember there being a thinking that, boy, the fact that Gore won so handily means that this is going to be an easy race in November. But what it did suggest is a really unified Democratic Party and that there wasn't an interest in the Democratic Party to see things shaken up, that they felt pretty confident that given where where things were with the economy especially, that that was going to be the, the tailwind that would bring Al Gore into the White House, that he was different enough from Bill Clinton, especially in his personal life, that he could run really on, we've got a great economy, we've got eight years of things going really well, why would you want to change course now? It's like I said last night in, um, in my remarks to Bill Buckley was there, I said, um, Bill and I have got a lot in common. We both went to Yale and he wrote a book at Yale and I read one. Well, he he kind of had this down-home pitch and uh, he could talk to, to voters in a way that I think was, you know, attractive uh, at the time. Uh, it wasn't standoffish. Uh, he, you know, the media gave him a lot of grief about not being as smart as other presidential candidates or if he mispronounced something, it was a big, a big deal. But for the most part, uh, the party itself raised a ton of money. And you can't turn, you know, I mean, the Kennedys had a dynasty, but the Bush family had a dynasty, too. And uh, they tapped a lot of big donors that ended up making the difference in that primary. The two primaries were quite, quite similar. You have the conventional choice wins in both cases, right? After a a flurry of interest at the beginning about these reform-minded mavericky kind of folks, you end up with the vice president and the former president's son. And it's not the Super Tuesday anticlimactic is is probably the right word. But I don't think anybody by that point, I don't think anybody was expecting a climax. Right. This is the what you expect. Uh, You expect for the sitting vice president to win and you expect for the well-funded, well-organized Bush campaign that is well attuned with where the mainstream of the Republican electorate is to do well. And they do. Here is a candidate on the Republican side who has his experience as a governor of a a big state uh, going for him, being an executive, which back then was considered to be the gold standard, right? You you had... um, executive experience, you had the the sort of buck stops with me experience that you don't get if you're just a member of Congress. Um, but there's a worry whenever you have not spent time in Washington or in a job outside of a, a state 
that you don't have the requisite foreign policy experience and the chops to be able to handle, you know, if we get into the middle of a war or a foreign policy crisis. In the spring of 2000, we began a process, uh, the, the governor of Texas began a process to figure out who his running mate might be. And he appointed as the head of it, the uh, president, the CEO of Halliburton, Richard B. Cheney of Dallas. And we were looking at nine people. Um, and uh, Cheney was asso- was assisted by his uh, by a young lawyer named Liz Cheney. As time went on, uh, the governor of Texas became more enamored with the mind and abilities and judgment of Dick Cheney. And so, as he went forward, there were others that he was in that were still in consideration. But he was lo- looking more and more at Cheney, and he talked to me about it. But I was convinced there were more weaknesses than strengths because I was looking at it as a political calculation. So finally, one day. Uh, I had to talk about a stereotype. I had a phone in my office that was a red phone. This is, you know, sort of like weird. And only one person had that phone number. Karen Hughes had similarly a red phone. And one person had that phone number, namely the governor of Texas. So he wanted to be able to get a hold of us. And if that red phone rang, it was either him or a pizza you know, parlor offering to deliver pizza. So anyway, the phone rings and it's him and he's out on the campaign trail. And he's, but he's coming back to Austin that night. He says, I've been thinking about what you've been saying about Cheney. And I want you to uh, come prepared tomorrow. Meet me at the governor's mansion, 10 o'clock. And I want you to be prepared to make the case against Dick Cheney. And so I said, great, I'll be there. So they, they they went through a running mate selection process for Bush. It was like, should we check this box? How about the liberal Republican governor of New Jersey? Maybe we can bring in women with Christine Todd Whitman. Maybe we can do this with that. Maybe we can do this with the other thing. But in the end, Cheney provides the right answer himself. He served in my dad's administration, served in Gerald Ford's administration, served in the United States Congress. Uh, I, 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 I trust Dick Cheney's judgment. I, I know his character. He's a really good guy. So I, I walk in at 10 o'clock, actually a couple minutes before 10 o'clock, because Bush is like a be on time kind of guy. And uh, there are two, you know, there's a comfortable chair, and I sit down in it, and he's in a comfortable chair, maybe four or five feet away from me. And he says, okay, tell me why I shouldn't go with Cheney. And I said, well, number one, don't need to worry about Wyoming. Last lost, lost its electoral votes in 1964 in the Goldwater defeat. So don't need to worry about that, Wyoming. You know, number two, uh, Cheney had his first heart attack at the age of 34. He's been working on perfecting it ever since. He's had several more heart attacks. People are going to say the guy's not going to last four years. You know, anyway, I had eight reasons, you know, and it's like World Wrestling Federation, though, because Bush is not a monologue kind of guy. So every time I'm saying, here's a stupid vote that he cast and Bush says, oh, well, that's just one. And there's not a governor there. Here's some more. And anyway, literally at the end of the I, I realized I can't I button my jacket. I realized I could not open my jacket because I've sweat through my shirt. So it's about 30 or 35 minutes of this, you know, World Wrestling Federation of political discourse. And Bush says, I finish. And Bush says, got anything else? I said, no. No, that's it. He said, good, really good. Turns to the guy sitting next to him and says, Dick, do you have any questions to ask Carl? Cheney is sitting there for the entire time as I'm you know, describing why he'd be a terrible choice for vice president. Now, there's a cynical way to look at it and say that Cheney was really angling for the position the whole time. I think that's poppycock. I think that instead, Bush, who is a person who uh, relies heavily on trust and confidence in, in one another, uh, and relationships in leadership, he liked the way Cheney, he, he, he dug what Cheney was laying down. He liked the way Cheney was approaching things. 
and Cheney had the right kind of energy, especially, especially, especially because Bush had no portfolio on foreign policy. And Cheney's time and Cheney's emphasis on foreign policy, uh, not just through his connections in the energy industry at Halliburton, but from his time as Secretary of Defense, made him a good choice. That night, the red phone in the office rings again, like at you know eight thirty or nine o'clock, and he's calling and he says, "You know, I've been thinking about what you had to say." And he said, "You had some really good reasons. You know, just some really these are you you detailed a big set of problems. These are real problems, but they're political problems. So put on your propeller hat and go figure out what you're going to do about them." Because he said, I've, "I'm going with Cheney." My job is to figure out who will be the best partner to me in the Oval Office. Who can I count on for sound judgment and candid advice? And if something terrible happens to me, who would the country have an immediate confidence in to step in and do that job? And he said, that's what my responsibility is. Your job is politics. Go figure out what you're going to do. We look forward to winning and holding out the American promise for every citizen. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my running mate, Dick Cheney. We have a tough race ahead of us, but I look forward to this campaign, and I am absolutely confident we will prevail. The campaign discussed a number of people. Bob Schrum. Joe Lieberman, uh, John Kerry, John Edwards, Bob Kerry. uh, All of those people were discussed. And Gore was quite intent on picking Lieberman. And the majority of us would have preferred someone else. Thank you, my friends. With pride in his achievements, with gratitude for his acceptance of this challenge, and with faith in his fight for working families, I'm here to announce my running mate, the next Vice President of the United States, Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. For the... Lieberman pick. Remember, Joe Lieberman was also one of the folks uh, on the Democratic side who was very critical of uh, Bill Clinton during the uh, time of the impeachment and uh, of his conduct with Monica Lewinsky. And so it was both, you know, an acknowledgement that, um, hey, not everything was great with Bill Clinton. We get that. And we I have somebody standing right next to me who said it wasn't cool. Um, and then also the historic nature, of course, of putting someone, he's not putting a, a, a woman on the ticket, but he is putting the, a candidate who would be the first Jewish um, vice president in history and uh, seeing that as an opportunity to sort of generate some enthusiasm for a ticket that, It's pretty much like two middle-aged white guys. I'm tempted to ask the same question Vice President Bush asked in 1988. If you have to change horses in midstream, doesn't it make sense to get on the one that's going in the right direction? You know, I think, uh, you know, for example, John Kerry or John Edwards uh, would have been a much better choice for us. That's what I thought at the time. Uh, now, unequivocally, I think that John Kerry would have been the best choice. Tipper and I and our family, including my mother, are thrilled to welcome Joe and Hadassah and their family, including Joe's mother. And I say to all of you now, together, we're going to take this ticket. 
from Nashville, Tennessee today to Los Angeles, California next week, and then all the way across America to the White House in November. Next time on Election Rewind. If you give me your trust, I will honor it. Grant me a mandate, I will use it. Give me the opportunity to lead this nation, and I will lead. It, it was just one of these moments where so much information was transmitted without speaking a single word. It suggested, of course, that he was a faithful husband, quite taken with his wife and she with him. Gore acted like the schoolyard bully who was trying to shake Governor Bush down for his lunch money. On substance, I would argue that Gore clearly won the first debate. I'll make you one promise here. You ain't seen nothing yet. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.